Hello, welcome to the Lancet podcast. I'm Richard Lane and it's Friday, December the 5th. This week has seen the launch of a major Lancet initiative that you won't actually find in the issue of the Lancet, dated December the 6th to the 12th. On Wednesday, December the 3rd, we published the Lancet's Child Maltreatment series. And in a moment, we'll be hearing from one of the authors of that series, the main focus of this week's podcast. Also, please do visit the series page on thelancet.com where you'll be able to access all the articles and get a full audio commentary of the press conference held earlier in the week. But before we hear more about child maltreatment, here are a few content highlights from the issue. Again, this is dated December the 6th to the 12th. Asbestos or rather asbestos-related disease, is the topic of the long editorial. This is pegged to a High Court ruling on November the 21st affecting England and Wales, whereby employers who have been exposed to asbestos can now make claims against the insurance companies of the employers where they were exposed to asbestos. Usually this would have been 20 or 30 plus years ago. The editorial concludes by saying that every country in the world should listen to the World Health Organization. No form of asbestos is good asbestos, and all exposure to its various forms should cease. And another editorial highlights a potentially groundbreaking guidelines in the UK National Health Service. This concerns ethical purchasing, which could mean that all supplies and purchasing by the UK National Health Service would have to be ethical or basically fair trading, so one to watch. In research, there are some important negative outcome studies, all previously published online before print. For example, there's a much-publicised trial among women in South Africa about the potential of the microbicide Caragard to protect women against HIV. Sadly, the microbicide, whilst found to be safe, did not show improved efficacy. And another research article, actually a meta-analysis of published trials, urges a review of the American College of Cardiology and the American Heart Association guidelines concerning the use of beta blockers around the time of non-cardiac surgery, such as vascular surgery. The main result of this meta-analysis showing a doubling in the risk of stroke when beta blockers are used. And an interesting review in the perspective section about the history of blinding trachoma, which remains a public health priority in some parts of the world, most notably in southern Sudan. But returning to the launch of a major initiative earlier this week by The Lancet, and this concerns child maltreatment. If you go to thelancet.com and click on the series in the primary navigation, you can go to a landing page summarising the series, giving you full access to all the articles, and unabridged audio from the press conference held in London earlier this week. The main point of this series is to highlight the very complex and topical, particularly in the United Kingdom at the moment, issues surrounding child protection and particularly the implications for health professionals in detecting child maltreatment. Let's hear a clip from the press conference. You're actually now going to hear from Professor Ruth Gilbert. She is from the Centre for Evidence-Based Child Health at the University College of London Institute of Child Health, United Kingdom. She's one of the authors of the paper and in this clip you'll hear her mapping out key issues particularly to do with the underreporting of child maltreatment. Well, I'd just like to extend a big thanks to The Lancet for uh, initiating this series and uh, bringing a timely discussion of the science behind child maltreatment. And thanks to my co-authors. 
I'm going to start by uh, just telling you a bit about who reports child maltreatment. This is a, a, a graph from, uh, based on figures in the States, but very similar patterns are observed in the UK as well. And what you see is that this top bit is a variety of professionals who have complementary roles in reporting, uh, recognising and reporting child maltreatment to child protection agencies. The most important group is schools, teachers and school counsellors, police and other law enforcement bodies, and to a lesser extent, reports come from social services and from medical personnel, mental health personnel. The community is also important, and reports come from anonymous sources, neighbours, relatives, and in the States they contribute about 44% of the reports to child protection agencies, and in the UK slightly less, about 36% on the 2008 uh, figures. Our first key message is that re recognition and reporting of child maltreatment is important to promote child safety, health, welfare, through the provision of preventive, supportive, protective or therapeutic interventions. I think this statement is really uncontentious. Everyone would agree that where there is a high level of suspicion that a child is being maltreated, that child should be reported and every effort should be made to stop the uh, maltreatment continuum. What this statement really makes clear, though, is how important it is that reporting must be followed by effective interventions. It should not just involve assessment and monitoring. And which event interventions are effective of a, is, of course, the most crucial question for this series, actually, and is the subject of the next paper that's going to be presented. So just to remind you about how common uh, child abuse is, we know from self-report studies of adolescents recalling whether they were maltreated or not, and to some extent of parents being asked about certain disciplinary practices and um, the supervision of children. We have um, studies that tell us a bit about how common child maltreatment is. These studies are of very variable quality and have been done in different ways, so we're left with sort of ranges of figures, um, which, as you can see, range from 4 to 16% for physical abuse, around 10% for psychological abuse, uh, up to 15% for neglect, and so on and so forth. In, we have no studies that tell us uh, the level of exposure to any of these, but based on these figures we can see it's in the region of 1 in 10 children, 10%. We know from North American studies that around um, a third to uh, one, less than one-tenth of children um, are, um, who have abuse recognised by, by professionals are reported to child protection agencies. And the net effect of that is for the child population overall, about between 1.5% and 5% of children are reported each year to child protection agencies. Of those, about 1% will have child maltreatment substantiated, slightly less in the UK because we have a different process, so about 0.3% will have a child protection plan in the UK. 
And studies have shown that very few of them will be placed in out-of-home care. So the, the idea that being reported to, to child protection agencies then means you might be removed is very far from the truth. There's many other services that are offered. What these figures show, as you can see as we move down this picture, is that very few children come to, few maltreated children come to the attention of child protection agencies. And this is due to a failure at every step of that process, a failure of recognition, a failure of reporting, a failure of substantiation. And what we're most concerned with in this paper, and I'll come to later on, is that we're also concerned about whether those that are reported actually get helpful services in the end. Our next key message is that um, while screening and direct questioning of children might improve <coughs> recognition, a critical reason why professionals do not report all suspected cases of child maltreatment to child protection services is their concerns that the benefits might not always outweigh the harms. So research is needed to quantify this, this point, to quantify how much the benefits of recognition and the subsequent interventions outweigh the harms of the process <coughs> for children overall. And I'm going to very quickly just take you through a recent study from the States to show you the issues here. This study was based on 15,000 injury visits for children to paediatrician offices. They were asked about children that they suspected might have, might have been abused. This is physical abuse. And about around 10%, they thought there was some degree of suspicion. And of course, this was on a spectrum of certainty. Very few, only 74 of this, so that's 4%, were considered likely or very likely to have been subject to physical abuse. A far larger number were thought to be possible or unlikely to have been abused, but there was some suspicion. They reported in total, these ones down here, 95, out of all of these that they suspected. So that's 6% that they reported. But of course, one, as one would hope, they reported many more of those that they thought were likely to have been abused than of the others. So they reported three quarters uh, of those. And there were other factors in, in reporting, you know, whether there was drug or alcohol misuse in the family uh, and, and so on. Just look at these figures. What this shows is that if we are going to increase recognition, if we are going to lower the threshold for reporting, let's say we increase this, the proportion here to 10%, we will quickly overwhelm services. We will more than double the total number reported to child protection services. And it is unlikely that they will have the capacity to cope. The additional problem is that in each of these boxes, and I've tried to show it by this shading, there are children who were definitely maltreated, and there are children who were not maltreated. So for each of these children, each of these groups of children that you report to child protection services, and particularly if you increase this proportion here, you will be sending through more children that were maltreated, but also a very large number of children who were not, were not maltreated, who are likely to suffer the stigmatisation and the unpleasantness of that experience. 
that is unavoidable. We can get better at recognising maltreatment, but we cannot avoid the fact that we will be referring children who were not, were not maltreated alongside those that were. So it's not surprising that in this study, when they examined reasons why clinicians did not report, they were things like, if they expected a negative outcome of reporting to child protection services, they didn't report. If they lacked confidence that reporting would improve outcomes, they were less likely to report. If they felt it would be preferable to work with the family to resolve the issue themselves, they were less likely to report. And if they were concerned that reporting might damage their clinician-family relationship, they were less likely to report. Intuitively, these clinicians are weighing up the harms and benefits to this child population that they are seeing overall. And who knows whether they are making the right decision or not. So how can we improve response and recognition? Well, one of our key messages is that the developing evidence base, which is really improving um, within paediatrics for recognition of children at high risk of maltreatment, should be expanded across all professions. So we know much more about how to recognise the seriously injured um, children, and we're getting much better at particularly evaluating deaths. There's also a growing evidence base about tools that we can use for direct questioning of children, particularly in mental health services. Um, there's screening of children is not very promising, but training is, is, is clearly important. What the evidence shows, however, is that children who are injured are a minority of maltreated children. So a large Canadian study showed that of all maltreated children who reached the threshold for substantiation of their maltreatment, only 4% had injuries requiring medical attention. Of those that reached the level of substantiation for physical abuse, only 7% had injuries requiring medical attention. The message is that the vast majority of maltreated children do not have injuries. And so we need to look at other ways and other professional groups that have ongoing care, ongoing observation of these children, and are able to pick up the signs of distress, changes in behaviour, and to be available for disclosure. Well, it will be clear to all of you that a really important group for that our schools and nursery staff, and of course community health services, particularly GPs, who have the insights by seeing children and both parents. So our last key message is that we need to look at alternative ways, in addition to child protection services, of recording for professionals to record maltreatment, assess need and access therapeutic or supportive services. And this, this is because of that problem of the spectrum of certainty, and maltreatment is often an uncertain a certain diagnosis, and the, the issue of capacity and benefits outweighing harm. So of course the threshold for certainty should be commensurate with the action taken. We need to be very certain that a child has been maltreated if, if we are going to be taking a child out of its home. Um, but this is really the first line of intervention, and other approaches would have been tried first. 
and failed. We need to be much less certain if we're going to arrange for parent training, for organize, if we're going to organise a nursery place or provide home, intensive home visits or coaching on how to manage a child's behaviour, with follow-up to see whether suspected maltreatment persists. So we need an alternative approach that reflects the real uncertainties in recognising child maltreatment and allows professionals themselves to access services and interventions early on for children who they suspect of being maltreated and that supports and works alongside child maltreated, child protection services. Professor Ruth Gilbert concluding this week's podcast. Many thanks for listening. See you next week.